We're going back to December of 1957. That was before I was born. For some of you, maybe 1957 was a good year. But December of 1957, there was somebody named Theodore Geisel. Anybody know who Theodore Geisel was? Anybody know his pen name? Nobody. Everybody stumped. Dr. Seuss. I heard it from somewhere. Somewhere in the back. That's Dr. Seuss. Dr. Seuss wrote, he had a book published that December of 1957. It became one of his classics. Anybody want to venture to guess what the title of that book was? December, December of 1957. December is important. I heard it. The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. And as the story apparently goes, Dr. Seuss or Theodore Geisel in his own words said, the year prior in 1956, it was the day after Christmas, he was looking in the mirror and saw himself and said, that guy looks kind of grinchy. These are what his words were. And he said, what is his problem? What is going on? So he went to seek after why was he so bothered with the Christmas season? He was concerned about all the commercialism of the Christmas time. And so he set out to write a book. Now, I say all that about Theodore Geisel, and no way am I endorsing him this morning because he is not a Christian. He is not a, a God-glorifying man. But it's something we are familiar with. As a matter of fact, as he goes on this story, some of you are familiar with it. He comes up and devises a plan The Grinch does. It is the night before Christmas. The Grinch looks out over Whoville, which is the town. And forgive me, I was a second grade teacher, so this is very near and dear to me. He looks over at Whoville and he gets very upset that all of these people are going to be singing and rejoicing. And he gets really upset because he hates Christmas. And the writer says they don't know why the Grinch hates Christmas, perhaps because his heart is two sizes too small. And that's how he's defined. But he comes up with a plan, an awful plan, as the writer records, and it is to disguise himself as Santa Claus. So he puts on a red suit, and he realizes he needs a reindeer. But there are no reindeers to be found. So he looks over and sees his dog, Max. And he gets some red yarn and ties a horn onto Max's head and decides this is it. Gets a sleigh, some empty bags, and says, Tonight, when everybody goes to sleep, I'm going to go into their homes, and I'm going to steal all their stuff. And we'll see how happy they are on Christmas morning. And so he does just that. He goes into the town on the rooftops where everybody's asleep. He goes in. He takes the presents. He takes the food. And he can't wait the next morning as they arrive. He is, or as they arise, he's listening over Whoville to see how they're going to mourn. As the writer says, states to go boo-hoo. And this is what is written in the book. Everyone who, down in Whoville, the tall and the small, was singing. This is Christmas morning. Without any presents at all. He hadn't stopped Christmas from coming. It came. Somehow or other, it came just the same. And the Grinch with his Grinch feet ice cold in the snow stood puzzling and puzzling. How could it be so? It came without ribbons. It came without tags. It came without packages, boxes, or bags. And he puzzled three hours till his puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from the store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more. And some of you know the rest of the story. He goes on where he ends up bringing back everything to the houses. And he actually, as he spoke of earlier in the feast about a roast beef, he ends up carving it at the end. Now, again, not endorsing him because he could have made this the real meaning of Christmas. 
there could have been the real spiritual connotation. And in his own words, he actually thought of all the religious connotations and he kept it with a roast beef. That was the big celebration. So before we get caught up too much on that, just realize the Grinch of that story, the Grinch turned out to be okay. He learned a lesson. He went back and gave everything back. But two millennia prior to him, two millennia prior, there was a Grinch-like character who was not a fictitious character, who was a real man, a ruthless, barbaric, and depraved man. A man that in comparison would make Mr. Rogers, <laughs> would not even compare. Mr. Rogers would make the Grinch, or excuse me, would make the Grinch look like Mr. Rogers. Forgive me for that. This morning, I'm going to depart from the traditional text. Usually we're in Luke chapter 2, Matthew chapter 1, speaking about the birth of Jesus. But we're going to go into the next chapter of Matthew this morning. If you're taking notes, it is a message titled, The Grinch Who Tried to Erase Christmas. The Grinch Who Tried to Erase Christmas. And by the way, as you turn to Matthew chapter 2, his name was King Herod. Some of you are familiar with King Herod. He heard that there was a baby that was born. And this baby was to be the king of the Jews. And King Herod was fearful of his reign, that it would be challenged from this newborn king. And so he went about great measures to try to destroy this baby. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. As you turn there, I'm going to pray. Father, as we turn to Matthew chapter 2, not a typical passage that we would study for a Christmas message, but God, a passage that we can see your faithfulness in securing the good news for us. The good news of great joy. The good news from the very beginning that was attacked. That was an attempt to erase it. That God, you secured it. God, may we see your faithfulness as we study this text this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 1, I'm just going to walk us through it. At, in Matthew chapter 2, excuse me, verse 1, I'm going to walk us through it. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And they were saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Where is he? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Look at verse 3 with me. When Herod the king heard this, he was, what? Troubled. Keep that in mind. He hears there's a baby who's born, who's the king of the Jews, and immediately he's troubled. Anybody want to guess why he's troubled? He's concerned. Someone is going to challenge him for the throne. So he's troubled. All Jerusalem, it says, as well with him. Verse 4, And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. Look at verse 8. 
And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, note what he says, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Stop there. Some of you already know the story. Some of you know what is going on. But remember when he heard the news that a king is to be born? He was troubled. He wasn't rejoicing. He was troubled. And now he tells them, hey, go and find this child. Bring news to me so that I might worship. Well, that sounds good. But that wasn't the intent of his heart, as we will see. Verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Notice in verse 12, they were warned. Where did the warning come from? From the Lord. And why did that warning come? Because as we'll read, Herod had a completely different plan. His plan was not to worship baby Jesus. His plan was to destroy him. So the Lord intervenes, warns him in a dream not to return. We read in verse 13, And now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you for Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. That's interesting. Because in Herod's own words, it was go search for this child so I can come and worship too. And yet God must intervene and tell the wise men, do not go back and tell them where he is. Must tell Joseph, get up and go to Egypt, flee. Because Herod is scheming. Verse 14. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. That's a heavy text for Christmas message. Not much joy in that part of the message. Here is a diabolical plan to destroy Jesus. That this man would set out and be so adamant about it, he would say, kill everybody who's two years younger. That way we make sure we wipe out this one who was born king of the Jews. Now think about it. You take the Grinch and you compare him to this man. That Grinch does look like Mr. Rogers. Nothing in comparison. 
Now, again, this is not a Dr. Seuss book. This is a real person, a real man. And forgive me this morning, I'm going to ask you a hypothetical question that I don't often ask. But have you ever considered what would have happened if Herod had succeeded, succeeded in killing the baby Jesus? Now, we don't often think about that. Because God is sovereign. God is in control. But why such a big deal? Why would God intervene? Why not just let it go on and play out? Why would God come and warn the wise men and warn Joseph? Because God had a plan. What would it mean for us if Herod had succeeded? Think about it. But here's the beauty that I want you to get this morning. Isn't it wonderful to know that no scheme of Satan will succeed against God's sovereign plan? No scheme of Satan will succeed against God's sovereign plan. No matter how we look at things, what we think, no plan of Satan will succeed. No matter how diabolical the plan, Herod came up with a very heinous diabolical plan. Maybe we call him instead of Herod the King, Herod the Grinch. And no matter how much that plan is empowered by the principalities of darkness, it could not, it could not prevail against God's demonstration of love towards us. I want you to sit on that for a second this morning. That no matter how big the plan of Satan, no matter how big the plan of the, the principalities of darkness to thwart God's plan, Nothing could prevail against God's demonstration of love towards us. Nothing could stop God's love gift of his son. That's an amazing thing. We have this here in Matthew chapter 2 to point us to this, that look at the attack that would come, but look at God's faithfulness from the very beginning. To protect this plan, to secure this plan, to guarantee this plan that would bring salvation to mankind. God's guarantee. You know, the Grinch could not erase Christmas. God's love cannot be thwarted by anything. Many of you know John 3.16, what is it? For God so what? Loved. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. That if you would just believe, whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. God's love. This is the child that we speak of that was sent 2,000 years ago. God clothing himself in human flesh. God with us, who came to dwell among us. Just right after his birth, there's already a plan. Destroy him. Get rid of him. Try to thwart the plan of God. Try to get in the way of the love of God. And church, to be encouraged this morning that nothing can do that. Nothing can get in God's way. You know, it's interesting when we speak of Jesus, you know that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. I want you to stop on that for a second. Because some of us think, well, you know what? I really wasn't lost. I was okay. I had my way. I wasn't like everybody else. Well, that means that we don't need a Savior. But guess what the Bible says about us? That we're all lost. And that we're all in need of a Savior. It was Jesus, the Scripture says, who came into the world to save sinners. 
But guess what? Most of us don't like to put ourselves in that classification. Some of us understand that we are what we are by the grace of God. We are saved by the grace of God. But some people have a hard time admitting that, yes, I am a sinner. But that was the reason this child was born. To come into the world to save sinners. I have a question. Who does that? Who comes to give their life to save sinners? I mean, think about just the times we go to try to help somebody. We don't usually try to help the worst of the worst out there. It's somebody who, oh, they're okay, they're kind, they're gentle. I can, I can reach out to them. But who desires to help sinners, to save sinners? Who would love somebody who lives in complete opposition to them? There's only one. That's our God. That's our God. Unlike anybody else, our Lord Jesus, He is the one. He came to save sinners. And guess what? That's you? Oh, I'm offended, Pastor. Well, that's me too. We are all of whom he came to save. We have all sinned. And we often don't think about the gravity of sin. You say, Pastor, it's Christmas. Why are we talking about sin? Because that's why we celebrate the birth of Jesus. This is the whole point why he would come to earth. It's because of the nature of sin. It's because of what sin has done. Some of us think, Pastor, but I'm only human. Of course I'm going to sin. But do you know who our sin is against? It's rebellion against God himself, against a holy and righteous God. Let me try to put it in perspective for you. So let's say there was a teenager. And the teenager got in a fight with their sibling, and they punched their sibling. Well, that's not good. That's an offense against sibling. But let's imagine the dad comes in to break up the fight, and that teenager turns to dad and punches dad. Well, now let's imagine dad calls the police. And the police show, come up and try to grab a hold of that teenager, and the teacher punches that police officer. And now that teenager has to go to court, and they stand before a judge, and they look at the judge and go up to him and punch that judge. Now, the offense was the same to all those individuals. The offense was the same. They, that teenager struck somebody else. But I want you to think about the difference between striking their sibling and striking a judge. Do you see a difference with that? Some of you absolutely do see the difference between striking just your sibling and then striking a judge. Well, do you know the Bible speaks of God as being the ultimate judge? That he is the holy and righteous one? And he is the one whom we stand accountable to? And now think of all those offenses are against him. They're not against our, our brother or sister or whatever else. They're against the God who is God Almighty. It's a different perspective of sin. That it's not just that I'm, I'm just human, but I've actually sinned against a holy God. And the Bible says that this holy and righteous God by, will by no means clear the guilty. And I'm thinking, wow, it's a crazy story. This, this, this Christmas story of a baby being born for this same or for the very same reason. Think about our, our lives. How many lives have we told? For most of us, we couldn't count. Maybe for all of us, we couldn't count in our entire lives. How many lies we've told? How many things that we, have we stolen? I mean, cheated on taxes, took some paper from work, whatever it is. How many things have you stolen? How many times have you lusted after somebody? 
been jealous or envious of somebody, been divisive? How many times have you pursued your own will and not God's will? I could go on and on and on. By the time I finish, we're not going to be feeling very good. But the reality is many, 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 many times. And those offenses are against a holy and righteous God that all of us will stand before one day. And when we stand before him, guess what? Based upon what we have done and that alone, we stand guilty, 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 guilty. But that is why God's demonstration of love was to send his son, Jesus. That is why this good news was delivered on the morning of the birth of Christ, because he has come to save us. It wasn't just about this baby who was born in a manger, but what he came to do. It was his mission. He came to save sinners and sinners who are just like you and me. That was his mission. He was born in human flesh for a specific purpose. He came to be a perfect sacrifice who would die in our place. And you know what? Many of us can, can, can say that over to somebody else. You know, Jesus died in your place, but what exactly does that mean? What does it mean for him to die in your place? It means that all the wrath of God that's being stored up for us, for our sin, our offenses against a holy and righteous God, that all of that was poured out upon Christ on the cross. So that all of my debt, all of your debt could be cleared, wiped out, gone. That Jesus would pay the full penalty of sin. You know, I heard recently, and some of you may have as well watching the news, that somebody went into a Walmart and paid off everybody's layaway items. True story, it was in the news. Actually, I think I've heard it a couple of times. Different Walmarts. I'm like, maybe I should go put some stuff on layaway. No, I'm just kidding. But somebody had gone in and wiped out the debt of everybody. They paid for their items. Now imagine all those people on the list get a phone call from an employee at Walmart. And the employee says, I've got great news for you. And an anonymous person came in to pay off all the items that you have for Christmas on layaway. They're paid for. The person hearing that news might receive that news with great joy. That is amazing someone would do that. They might fully believe it. They even saw it on the news that someone had paid. They're thinking, I hope that's me. I hope they paid for mine. And then they get the call and they think, man, it happened. Now, they can't enjoy the fullness of that blessing unless they do something else. They have to go down to the store and to get what belongs to them now. They must receive it. They must go down and receive what has been purchased for them. You know, Jesus' death on the cross, much the same. It's very similar. His death satisfied all of God's wrath against sinners. The sinner's debt is wiped clean. But the gift of salvation must be received. It must be received. One must turn to Christ they must come to him. They must receive him. The Bible says to repent and believe means turn from yourself and turn to him. To trust in what Christ has done on your behalf. Now think how foolish it would be for me to go shopping at Walmart, to have these gifts lined up for my family, and I'm trying to pay it off on layaway, and to get the news, it's paid for. Someone else has come and done the dirty work. They paid all the money for it. 
foolish it would be for me not to go down there and pick up the stone. I mean, that, that's idiotic. It's been paid for. It's been done. It's paid in full. That's the same of what happened on the cross. That it's paid in full. And yet it's us who must turn to come to receive Christ. To come to Him in genuine faith. To receive forgiveness of all our sins. Do you realize that Christ's death on the cross, the wrath that was poured out on Him, was the wrath that was for our past sins, for our present sins, and for our future sins. It was once and for all. That's what occurred. Jesus paid the penalty. It's been paid on our behalf. Now, if I was doing an infomercial right now on TV, I'd say, but, but wait, there's more. That's not it. There's more to it. It's not just that our debt was cleared. There's more to this. Jesus also came to fulfill the law. So I want to take you back into our text. You remember, he's just a baby. He's an infant. He's under two years old. Why was it important for God to keep him going, to let him live longer, to let him live up into his early 30s? Why was it important? Because Jesus came to fulfill the law. He had to come to obey God's law. You see, God's requirement for us to be righteous is to live according to his law. But guess what? None of us have done that. Every single one of us have broken God's law. Think about it. To live perfectly is God's standard. To be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now please don't stand up and say, Pastor, that's me. Because it's none of us. But that little baby that came that we celebrate, that little baby also came for that purpose to fulfill that on our behalf, to live a perfect and holy and righteous life, to fulfill God's law on our behalf. So the first problem was that we've sinned. We've offended a holy God multiple times over and over and over. And because of that, we have a debt. But by Christ's sacrifice, that debt is removed. But the second problem is not only do we need that debt removed, we need righteousness. There is no righteousness on our own. It's gained by living perfectly according to God's law. And since we've all broken God's law, it's definitely a problem. So Jesus came not only to die as a substitute in our place, but also to live in our place, to live perfectly in our place, to fulfill God's holy law in our place. Without Christ's full and perfect obedience to the law of God, his death would simply remove our guilt, but not secure our righteousness. It would not secure our righteousness. It was necessary for that baby Jesus to survive the attack of Herod the Grinch. It was necessary for him to grow up and to fulfill God's law. He needed to live a perfect life. The Bible says he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. For those who come to Christ in genuine faith, not only are their sins forgiven, but they're credited with Christ's righteousness. This is called justification. Jesus' death and resurrection guarantees two things for all who would believe. 
I want you to think about these two guarantees. In our text, we have Jesus born. He's a young child. We have the king who's trying to kill him, but God intervenes and protects this child. Why? Because he guarantees two things for the believer. Two things. First, forgiveness of sins. You know there is no other way. Think of all the plan and all the folly of man who thinks they can come up with another way. Think of all the people who said, well, I've tried this and I've tried that and I've done this and I've done that. It's all folly. There's only one way. And it's Jesus Christ. Forgiveness of sins is the first thing that was guaranteed. The debt of sin being wiped clean. Jesus paying the full penalty by receiving our penalty upon himself. Called propitiation. He satisfied the full wrath of God. That was the first guarantee. The second one was to be declared righteous. We have no righteousness of our own to stand before God. We can't say, but look, I tried hard. But look, I did this better or that better. or I, I changed this or changed that. We are all sinners. But to know that Jesus lived a perfect life and that perfection of his life would be credited to us. So no more debt. We're forgiven of debt, but now we're credited with his righteousness. Sit on that for a second. Who's going to take that away? Is the king or the Grinch, as we look at him, can he take that away? Can he, use, uh, can he uh, overdo God's plan or overtake God's plan? Can he erase what God has done? He can't. There's security in Christ. When we look at the message in Matthew chapter 2 and we see the attack upon Jesus from a very early life, what we get out of it is there's assurance in our God. That no matter what the attack is, that if our God is for us, who can be against us? There is great hope in Jesus Christ. Like what John Piper said. John Piper said this. He defined Christmas. He said, Christmas, the Son of God expressing the love of God to save us from the wrath of God so we could enjoy the presence of God. Read that again. The Son of God expressing the love of God to save us from the wrath of God so we could enjoy the presence of God. That's forever. For all eternity. That there would be this assurance, this guarantee. You know, I read earlier, the Grinch who stole Christmas, the Grinch concluded, he said, maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas perhaps means a little bit more. And I would venture to go out on a limb and say, it means a lot more. Not just a little bit more. You see, it's not about the gifts under the tree. And if I had to be completely transparent, I, like some of you, have been in some really long lines recently, in some very crowded stores where I didn't want to be because of a gift. And yet we can get caught up in losing the purpose of Christmas. That we come to celebrate Christ, our Lord. We come to celebrate what that means. 
that there's a guarantee through Christ for those who believe forgiveness of sins and righteousness accredited them, justification. The Bible says in, in the book of Corinthians that it is the inexpressible gift of God. You know what inexpressible means? Beyond words. It means I am trying to put words to this, but it's beyond words. That God would send his only son, that he would clothe him in human flesh, being fully God and fully man, for one purpose, to die for sinners and to rise for sinners, to live a perfect life on their behalf. And here's what we have this morning, that no Grinch can steal it. No Grinch can erase it. It's ours in Christ Jesus. But we have to come to Jesus. And I look around and I see very familiar faces. Some of you who come week after week after week, and you become very familiar with the gospel, with the good news of Jesus Christ. And yet that familiarity is not the same as faith. You need to come to Jesus. You need to receive Jesus. You need to turn from trusting what you think you can do is, am I getting better? Am I being good enough? And instead, turn to Him and trust in what Christ has done. Fully rely on what He has done. That God has guaranteed these things for you. Come to Jesus. Receive Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Worship Jesus. And this morning, We'll celebrate Jesus together. Church, that's the Christmas message. The Christmas message is that beyond anything that's under the tree is the inexpressible gift of God that guarantees salvation for those who would believe. Merry Christmas, church. Let's pray. Father, we looked at an untraditional passage this morning. But from that passage are reminded of your faithfulness. And God, I think too often we take for granted the Christmas message that a Savior was born. That it becomes very familiar to us the gospel itself becomes very familiar to us. And yet for some of us, we would be like those who would receive a call as those would from Walmart and hear, all of your stuff has been paid for. All you have to do is come and pick it up, receive it. And God, once again, we hear the message of Christmas, that a Savior was born. And that Savior had a purpose. To save those who were lost. To save sinners. But God, may today be a day that your spirit would draw man and woman and child unto you to receive Christ. To trust in Christ. That they might rejoice in the Christmas message. We pray these things in Jesus' name.